Welcome to The Conversation. My name is Benjamin Dixon. I'm host of The Benjamin Dixon Show, filling in here uh, for The Conversation. And I'm uh, proud to be joined this afternoon by Lex Stepling. He is the director, director of Policy and Campaigns for Dignity and Power Now. Lex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, there's a lot happening in context of the type of work that you do with um, defund the police or in your case, defund the sheriff. Uh, we've been following the situation out of uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, with the shooting of uh, Jacob Blake. Um, and, and I just kind of want to start there because of the egregiousness, uh, the egregious nature of that shooting. Um, in the work that you do in L.A. and L.A. County, um, just kind of give us some insight of, of what you saw when you saw that video and how you think the work that you're doing kind of intersects with that. Yeah, well, I saw what everybody else saw and I saw what everybody continues to see. And I think the volume with which we continue to see it is overwhelming. I don't think any of us um, seek to lose faith in our institutions. I don't think most of us want our institutions to be failed, to be discredited. In the case of law enforcement, that has happened. And in many cases, when a institution discredits itself or fails to deliver the service that we count on it for, the failure itself is not fatal, does not cost lives. In right. the case of law enforcement, their failures are deadly, they're ongoing, they're continuous. And unfortunately, when you ask, you know, what's my initial way of relating it to what's happening here in Los Angeles and the work that we do, just a couple of days ago, Pasadena Police Department shot Anthony McLean in the back and murdered him. And we could go on and on and on. We could spend our whole conversation listing the names of people that are taken from us by law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's so unfortunate and so true. I've uh, I've been doing this work for five years and there are just so many names and so many hashtags that after a while, the names start overlapping. Uh, you've been doing this work, uh, at least um, you've been doing some organizing uh, for seven years now, organizing uh, nationally to help push towards a, quote, future free from punitive punishment systems and towards a vision of healing and justice. Tell us about your work specifically. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this work uh, my whole life, and, and as is the case with many people, it's, it's not something you seek as a career. Uh, most of the time we are responding organically to what is, in fact, a crisis. It's a generational crisis, and it's a crisis that right now is being acutely felt by people for a number of reasons, one of which I think is that we're in an era where there's been a democratization of information, where there are cameras, where there's the ability to see the thing that used to be the thing that we just talked about. Right. What was kind of an, an anecdotal and experiential truth that people shared and fought for and hoped others would believe is now being seen by everybody. And I think it, it happening in plain sight with such kind of shocking clarity and such ugliness and such horror is forcing a conversation to happen that is actually long overdue. And when I say, you know, we work at Dignity and Power now to try to create and organize towards a future free of punitive punishment systems free of state violence. It's the reality of these departments, and you mentioned the police, you mentioned the sheriffs. We're also mm -hmm. talking about the courts. We're talking about probation departments. We're talking about district attorney's offices. We're talking about surveillance. We're talking about the jails themselves, corrections departments. It's not just the police officer on the street or the sheriff on the street, but it's a whole system that has been built. And whatever the intentions were in the beginning, the way it functions now, is a system that enacts a level of violence that is simply unacceptable, a level of corruption that is unacceptable, 
And the lack of transparency in an era where we get to acquire transparency so easily kind of speaks to uh, what a failure it is and how kind of divergent their function is from the interests of the community, from the needs of the community, and from the kind of collective desire we all have for safety. Yeah. And we understand that, you know, comprehensive community-based systems of care, access to public health models, access to social health models, A, is not a novel concept. Whenever it's been funded, whenever it's thrived, whenever, whenever it's been accessible at a community level, everybody has benefited and the public safety benefits have been exponential. Oftentimes, though, those kinds of programs are the first things to be cut. Yeah. And, you know, we're living in 40 years of Reaganomics and austerity where the only things that haven't been cut have been the police and the military. And unfortunately, that imbalance is kind of presenting itself in a really stark and tragic way right now. I think one of the things that um, uh, out of everything I'm hearing you saying, I think um, you're connecting the dots. Um, and I think that a lot of times those dots aren't connected in the minds of non-black people. Um could you help connect those dots a little closer? This is what I always say on my show. I say the police state was started in first and there and it was honed in the black community, but it was never going to stay there. And uh, we've seen so many instances. Uh, I think the, the story of Daniel Shaver is the one that always comes to mind where the police state has executed white people, too. But there seems to be a disconnect. Uh, with black lives versus all lives matter and white lives matter and, and, and those types of things. But connect the dots with this carceral state that you just described and make the case of why it's as important to non-black people as it is to black people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good way that you frame the question because we get stuck in this debate all the time and it's not really a debate. What it is is that we get faced with a certain kind of defensiveness from certain people who are made uncomfortable when there's a racial justice analysis applied to the question of structural violence and state violence. And so one of those kind of defensive responses is often, well, well, it happens to white people too. And that's true. It happens to everybody. And that speaks to the fact that it's a crisis. Communities that are seen as non-white, communities that are seen as black, communities that are underserved, are targeted by policing, are over-policed, mm. are saturated with the presence of police. And that allows for more of these instances. And no matter what anyone says about what the numbers reflect, I mean, a basic understanding of how uh, one sources information can speak to the fact that it is heightened and more concentrated in black communities or communities that are profiled as black or communities that are being gentrified away from blackness and into something else that brings a new kind of police presence. But the point is, is that everybody is a victim of state violence. Everybody is a victim of bad policing. And police departments, law enforcement departments have proven at this point that the reform approaches that have been attempted and well-funded and really so much effort has been put forth for decades have ultimately failed. That doesn't mean there might have been, you know, isolated incidents of progress. Of course, we understand there are individuals in all of these departments who mean well, but the point that we all have to face, whether we like to face it or not, is that these are failed institutions that are not only failing to make the community safer, they're not only failing to be the arbiters of public safety, but they're actually causing communities to be less safe. Yeah. And what you said around that call and that connect the dots, I do think it is still very hard for a segment of our country to understand that for most people, police do not represent safety, but in fact, represent something antithetic to safety. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a survey that was done by the Black Male Voter Project that showed, asked, like, what's the number one issue for black men um, in certain communities? And they said public safety. But when they defined public safety, it was safety from police, uh, which I think underscores what you said right there. I want to talk specifically with the time that we have left about your defund the share campaign and how it connects to obviously the defund the police campaign and how you're focusing on trying to reduce the amount of violence that's happening in L.A. County jails. Sure. There's not a singular campaign to, called Defund the Sheriff, but Defund the Sheriff is a call to action. But there are several campaigns operating towards a reallocation of resources, a divestment from law enforcement, a divestment from these failed institutions, and an investment in the community-based systems of care that we all deserve. So campaigns like the Justice LA campaign, which successfully stopped LA County from investing for almost $4 billion mm -hmm. into expanding what was already the largest jail system on the planet, and instead now has terminated that effort and is now pushing towards a vision of a comprehensive public safety set of outcomes that would involve all relevant departments. And it's an incredibly transformative vision that lives in what is called inside what is called the Alternatives to Incarceration Work Group, which was kind of the democratic process that was born out of our successful effort to stop the jail plan. Um, and it's very dense, but contains several pieces of a roadmap towards a Los Angeles that for once, for the first time, will not be the leader in all of the wrong things, but can become the leader in the right things with regards to investing in care, investing in public health, investing in social health determinants, investing in housing, et cetera. And then there's another campaign that's coming in November, will be on the ballot. It's a campaign, um, well, it's a campaign now for a measure that will be on the county ballot here in Los Angeles called Reimagine LA, which is a genuine opportunity for people to understand and be grounded in what the defund conversation actually looks like. Which is simply put, when we take resources away from things that have failed us, from things that cause us harm, from things that are wasteful, from things that, that kill members of our community, mm. and take those things and put them into the things that are lacking, like housing, like access to health care, like access to social health care, etc., uh, we will see exponential public safety benefits. And this goes along with the effort to continue to decarcerate all of our cities across the country, because what has been proven, and this is something that is not an argument to had, it's undeniable, is that everywhere where we've seen large amounts of people decarcerated and we've seen jail numbers drop rapidly, uh, public safety has gone up. And that's a fact. And there's a lot of reasons that I'm sure we could talk through. I know we don't have time, yeah. but that's something that we are continuing to organize towards because everybody benefits from that reality. Right. Right. We have to definitely make some more time for us to continue this conversation. Lex Stepling, Director of Policy and Campaigns for Dignity and Power Now. Thank you so much for joining me, brother. Likewise, thank you, take care. You too. Welcome back to The Conversation. I am pleased to be joined by none other than Professor Jared A. Ball. He is a professor of communication studies at Morgan State University, and he is the author of The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. Professor, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. I, last time we spoke, we kind of did a deep dive into your book. Um, this time, what I want to do is really kind of talk about the intersection of class and race, which is something that I talk about all the time on my program. But I think it really hits kind of squarely in the nexus of what you wrote about in your most recent book. And, and really, as it pertains to like how they're inseverable or Tell me whether or not you think that those two concepts are inseverable in our fight for liberation. Uh, is one greater than the other, neither to the detriment of that? What are your thoughts on that intersection? 
Well, I think they're absolutely inseparable, and uh, you can't uh, uh, engage in a struggle around one without engaging in, in a struggle around the other. And to the point about, uh, uh, you know, at least reference to my book, the argument there is that that in, as it relates specifically to black people, and I would argue this is a universal problem across the board, there has been an encouragement towards a more regressive and narrow form of what we were properly understand as identity politics and a walk away from radical political organization, uh, certainly class-based politics and radical redistribution, redistributionist politics. Mm. Uh, so while on the one hand, you know, certainly, uh, uh, and I acknowledge myself often all the time as someone who enters the space through a race-first lens, uh, but understanding that I can't stop there. Uh, and that's just, you know, based on my personal experience and, you know, my, my, the, the, the entry point for my analysis. But at the same time, I understand that if we don't uh, remain vigilant, and particularly around the issue of class and several others, uh, we can th these these issues of identity can be uh, reduced, made more narrow, uh, and in many ways turned into a very, in this case, anti-black or 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 anti-oppressed uh, uh, group set of politics, uh, if, yeah. if not uh, uh, measured and, and dealt with vigilantly. So absolutely, yeah. we need to focus on both for sure. I love the way you, 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 you frame that. You said identity has a role. You enter into the conversation race first, but you're never negligent of the class component. But And then you pointed towards how identity then can be reduced and then weaponized. And it's a, a, a phrase that we were saying around 2016 very heavily, the weaponization of, of identity politics. Uh, basically how liberals, they would want to see the top 1% diverse, right? Uh, whatever percentage of black people in America, let's get our ruling elite that kind of diverse. I, what kind of games do you, like, we could talk about this all day, but just, just in your work, in your study, in your book, Give us examples of how it's weaponized, reduced first, and then weaponized as something that's leveraged against working people. Well, I'll start with what, you know, in my book, for instance, I start by talking about Jay-Z, a little bit of pop culture and hip hop, and perfectly timed for our conversation, Jay-Z and Pharrell have come back with a new track, Entrepreneur, mm -hmm. which on the one hand does just what I was arguing about with Jay-Z's 444 video, or the story of OJ video, rather, that it, it, it includes some uh, nominally or, or surface level, uh, uh, you know, even radical imagery. Uh, uh, in, in this latest entrepreneur video, you get, you know, a lot of prideful imagery, black pride, black strength, black beauty, all things we need to see, we love to see, but, but couched in a very conservative politics around pull yourself up by your bootstraps, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly don't make any aggressive uh, uh, moves politically or radically in terms of organization or social movement. It's it's very much about, you know, start your own business, support your own business, and somehow that will lead to betterment for the entire community. And this is exactly the kind of propagated mythology that I argue is, is, is in, in, throughout my book uh, is is prevalent, and which is to say that the 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 uh, the struggles in this case of black people are reduced to some uh, pop sim symbolism, some references to black entrepreneurialism, some some uh, you know beautiful images of black bodies on screen, uh, almost to appease people begging for for you know who are starved for that, and and you know of course we are. But then it, 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 the, the, the radicalism is sort of stripped away and reduced to, you know, again, just start your own business, follow the black capitalist path 
and you'll be okay. And this is something that is uh, uh, the, the way uh, uh, our um, uh, 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 environment, our political and media environment works to limit yeah. the aspirations of people who are looking to, to struggle for freedom. So if you're, you know, so on the one hand, black people are saying, we want freedom, we want to be equal, we want to be this and that. So, so there is a, there has always been, uh, uh, in this country in particular, a systemic response that says, here's some imagery, here is some symbolism, but we're going to uh, uh, strip it of any sort of substantive radicalism as much as we possibly can, because it's understood from those in power that the pathway to economic equality is has is never been about uh, uh, you know entrepreneurialism, starting businesses, supporting or the circulating of the dollar and all that kind of stuff that we are imposed that it's imposed on black people in particular, uh, as in, in terms of encouragements and pathways towards towards uh, uh, liberation. So that's the kind of nuances, you know, the 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 trickery. I think we have to 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 work with, and that's why, again, particularly in this month of Black August and commemorating that tradition, we should be reminded of, of as Kwame Ture used to say, that Black visibility is not Black power. I'm glad you mentioned Kwame Ture. It couldn't have been a, a better segue into what I was going to ask you, because uh, as you started outlining the different type of radicalism or the different type of blackness, not radicalism, but different type of blackness, um, there is a certain type of blackness that is completely palatable to this power structure. Um, Bill Clinton at John Lewis's funeral said as much. He said that we were we were afraid that for a minute there that the movement was going to go towards uh, Stokely Carmichael, um, later known as Kwame Ture. Um, and instead it went towards John Lewis. Um, I'm curious how we can translate that type of whitewashing of black radicalism with the kind of status standard quo that is acceptable for white people. Obviously white radicalism is shunned as, as well, you know, socialism in, in, in any form is shunned, but it's, I, I want to draw some parallels there towards like what is being done to the black community to strip away um, the radicalism as opposed to what's consistently done in the white community. And then how we can we transcend those? Well, when, you know, uh, First of all, memory and uh, imagery and symbolism is political, uh, and there is there is always a, a desire among those in power to pro project their version of the world uh, into the world. So when we talk about white people, we don't hear you know we we have plenty of monuments and and historical memories offered up of plenty of different white people and movements, et cetera, but almost none of them are go towards the radical traditions. We don't hear about the white abolitionists. We don't hear about, you know, John Brown doesn't have statues. George Washington mm. has statues, you know. Yeah. Wendell Phillips doesn't have statues. Abe Lincoln has statues. So when Wendell Phillips said that Lincoln was a first-rate, second-rate man, as someone who was a fake abolitionist and didn't care about black people, we, we you know, he's erased from history. Uh, the labor unions, the the anarchists, the socialists, all the communists, all of those histories are, are erased. I mean, specifically, even the Pledge of Allegiance that, that school children in this country are, are encouraged to say every day was intentionally uh, reframed or, or, or repurposed with the with the phrase in, in God we trust specifically as an anti-communist mm -hmm. uh, uh, move so 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 when when there is a veneration of John Lewis the, the first thing that black people I think that we have to do is always be careful and say first of all we're not going to allow anybody to play games with us and and separate us and tell us who we should and should not like Absolutely. but we will at the 
same time be nuanced and sophisticated enough to understand that John Lewis was preferenced because his politics were were uh, more palatable, as you said, less uh, uh, overtly radical, and uh, more along the lines of working within the two-party, uh, you know, American electoral political process. Whereas we all know Stokely Carmichael, or Kwame Ture, was about, as he said himself, destroying that process and re recreating an entirely new country. Uh, that one that had never existed. So, of course, Bill Clinton and, and those uh, of his politics would want to promote John Lewis. And John Lewis, in his own memoirs, talked about being uh, the head of SNCC and going all throughout Africa and being told that if he was anywhere right to the, uh, to the, uh, to the politics of Malcolm X, that African leadership then at that time in 1964 wasn't going to want to deal with him. So mm. he even understood then that, that, that he was being pitted against, uh, uh, you know, different kinds of more radical uh, uh, politics, black politics, uh, even in his lifetime on the world stage. So, uh, again, we just have to be more vigilant and careful not to let people div divide us and, have, and, and play us against one another. At the same mm -hmm. time, being careful to understand why certain politics and traditions are venerated over others. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I love the way you frame that, um, and uh, especially in terms of of John Lewis's his own radicalism um, that was born and and lived in him, obviously uh, with his legacy. Uh, we have a few minutes left here, but I, I would like to talk a little bit more about your book in context of of why um, this book will matter to non-black people because I've read it and it is very significant and it really hits home to me. But I want more people to read it because I think the message translates far beyond black communities. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, certainly that's true. I focus on black people, and but through that lens, I think people can use the book for a number of different reasons. One, you get a, you, it, it can help, I think, better assess the economic and media uh, apparatuses in, in this country. I think, it, and also, I think, uh, advocates by the book's end a more radical, uh, universal political uh, uh, advocacy plan, so to speak, that I think we should all uh, be focused on, which is namely the redistribution of the, the gross domestic product of the country, the 20, at least before this crisis, the 20 Twenty trillion dollars that we all help generate, whether we shop, you know, uh, you know, uh, save, you, you know, spend, whatever we're doing, we're contributing to that money. Yet it's redistributed to that top one percent by public policy. And I think that all of us, through the, through an understanding of how propaganda is used in this country, how media and economics are discussed in this country, and journalism, uh, even in the context of Black America, all people can understand a little bit more about what's going on as it relates to to their specific experiences and offers up an idea. I think that we don't follow up on enough of uh, for for uh, addressing ourselves to, to uh, pol public political policy that redistributes the wealth for all of us uh, to reduce some of the uh, the internecine fights that we have uh, interracially. Jared, it's always a pleasure. It is always a pleasure to have these conversations with you. Definitely want to have you on again as soon as possible. Professor Jared A. Ball, he's a professor of communication studies at Morgan State University. His book is The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. Um, how can they get up with you really quickly? I mix what I like .org. Uh, the publisher has made the book available for free uh, in response to Black Lives Matter. So people can go I mix what I like, click the link there, get the book for free and, and see many of the other things that we're doing there. And I greatly appreciate the work that you're doing and uh, the time you've given me here on this program. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Anytime.